Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. This was some years ago. Uh, it was the end of a long day. Vicky and I were both tired, and we were hungry, and our, our, our young kids were irritable. So we settled into a restaurant booth, and we looked over the menu, and we placed our order, and soon uh, we began to eat. And then it happened. The kids snapped. Uh, one took a couple of French fries off their sibling's plate, and that merited a quick shove, which got a push back and a loud yelp and flailing arms. In a matter of seconds, uh, a Coke had spilled everywhere, and the third started to cry. Is anybody relating to this? Okay. As a dad, I knew what I had to do. I jumped out of the booth. I dragged two kids outside. I gave them a uh, quick and measured uh, swat to the seat of learning, as it were. <laughs> and I informed them that their behavior was unacceptable. They'd blown their opportunity to eat anymore. There would be no f- more food tonight. They looked mortified, and the fighting stopped. And we went back into the restaurant. I figured I'd done my duty. And then the cops arrived. And they pulled me aside, and they questioned me, and they questioned some others in the restaurant, and then placed me under arrest. I probably should have told you, those kids weren't mine. (laughs) They were seated two booths over. Apparently, you're not allowed to discipline someone else's kids. I also need to tell you, this is a made-up story. (laughs) But... It illustrates an important point. A father disciplines his own children, not someone else's. And there's something comparable in the spiritual realm here. God's discipline always begins with his own children. It was true of Israel years ago. It's true of Christians today. And for many of us, that can be confusing at times. Those who, who mock God and deny him and, and uh, overtly sin seem to do it with impunity. We assume that God's judgment should begin with those who, who do the greatest evil. But it usually doesn't. It, it begins with us. And that's been perplexing God's people for ages It's perplexing because when you look around, it seems like the bad guys are winning. And if we could just go back to the very beginning of this book of Daniel, Daniel starts his book by emphasizing that the Babylon's victory over Jerusalem wasn't some tragic triumph of evil over good. It was actually the Lord's will. 
It, it was God's doing. Here's what he writes. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. From Daniel's perspective, who's writing this, it was God who gave Babylon the victory. It was God who turned the holy things of the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who allowed them to be placed in the treasury of this pagan God. It was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to get away with mocking the God of Israel. So don't miss this. Uh, from the first page to the last, Daniel clearly saw God's hand in everything that happened. Uh, God had repeatedly warned the leaders of, of, and the people of Jerusalem to repent, to return to him, or there would be consequences but they just turned a deaf ear and they continued to arrogantly disobey. And finally, God had enough. He, he handed Jerusalem, Jerusalem over to the Babylonians who besieged the city and raided the temple and carried off the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's young men, including Daniel and his three friends. You know, for five years, I was a youth counselor at a residential treatment center out west and uh, I know there are teachers in the room many teachers in the room we we are not supposed to do this thing called group consequences uh, but sometimes if you can you know get a teacher to be honest maybe over a glass of Merlot or something um, if 90% of their class are acting like hellions, that whole class is going to feel the wrath, okay? Those four kids who were obedient and polite and working hard, one way or another, they're going to get caught up in the backwash of the misery that's about to be unleashed. It's not totally fair, it's just the way it is. When I was in school, unfortunately, I was part of the 10% that made life miserable for the teacher and who in turn made life miserable for the other 90% of the kids who were there to learn. It's a story as old as time. It's as old as Noah, as old as Elijah, uh, as old as Adam and Eve, as you and I and the whole world uh, live in the consequences of sin, the results of a fallen, sinful world. Sometimes the innocent suffers with the guilty. They, they, they get caught up in the backwash, as it were. That's what happened to Daniel and a few of his friends. They were caught in the backwash of God's judgment upon sins that were not explicitly their own. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, God didn't lose it the way I lost it in that fake restaurant story. God doesn't have a temper problem. His discipline and his judgment are perfect, they're perfect in timing and in scope. They are never unwarranted or out of line. The citizens of Jerusalem got exactly what they deserved and what they needed in order to turn their hearts back to God. And, and when it comes to dealing with his children, 
you know, even the harshest judgments are carried out, you got to believe me, with the best interests in mind, always with the purpose that we would grow in holiness. It's a hard one for us. For those of us who don't do well with, you know, nuance or holding two seemingly contradictory things at the same time, this could even feel like a, a faith deal breaker for you, you know? Well, pastor, last week you said God is so merciful, so grace-giving, that even one of the most evil tyrants in all of human history, a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, can experience the love and forgiveness and salvation of God who lovingly pursues him. What gives? That's true. Yes, correct, 100%. And also, he is a holy God, a, a God who will judge wickedness, even though he gives chance after chance after chance. And discipline always begins with his children. You know, uh, there's a pastor in California, Larry Osborne, and he shared an angry conversation that he had with a congregant. And I bet a lot of pastors have had a variation of this conversation. This, this guy came in hot, and he wanted to know why their church wasn't more aggressively defending biblical values, especially on the political front. He, he wondered why God seemed to be standing idly by while the people he saw as sinners prospered. And he was particularly upset by what he saw as the advance of, of, of what he called the gay agenda. And he blamed it on the churches such as his own that weren't fighting hard enough to stand up for biblical values. He was, he was sure that that was the main reason that God was letting the bad guys win. Now, interestingly, Pastor Larry happened to know that this young man just happened to be living with his girlfriend, uh, not giving or serving the church, had a reputation of being quick to anger. We get pretty upset with people who sin differently than us, don't we? Thank you for that one, Glenn. This guy misunderstood how God's judgment works. He thought it begins with non-Christians, and he figured his self-proclaimed faith in Christ should give him a little extra leeway, you know, a free pass for living like a Babylonian, as long as he had the Christian fish on the back of his truck and attended church. But that's not how it works. God's judgment begins with his own, which is why he raised up the Babylonians, allowed them to sack Jerusalem, and maybe, maybe, this is not a prophetic word, this is just speculation, maybe why he's allowed the modern-day sacking of the Canadian church. Our lives have not been all that different when it comes to things such as divorce, sexual purity, forgiving those who wrong us, loving our enemies, slander, gossip, the harder things of discipleship. It's like that old uh, scary movie, you know? The call is coming from inside the house. Chapter 5 of, of Daniel is, is another flash forward. Uh, many years have passed. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was no longer on the throne. A successor, they call him uh, the son, they call him Nebuchadnezzar the father. He's not actually a blood relative. Uh, Belshazzar now ruled the land. And um, 
one night Belshazzar hosted this great banquet, and in their drunken excess, he orders that those holy relics that had been stolen years ago from God's temple be, be brought in for, for kicks. And so the symbols of God and holiness are used for debauchery, mockery. I'm not sure there's even a modern-day equivalent. Like, I don't know, imagine the disgust you'd feel if our, if our communion elements were used mockingly in, a, in pornography or something. Like, not just gross, but, but truly blasphemous. And then an unexpected an unusual guest shows up, a disembodied set of fingers. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> In the sight of all the partiers, an uninvited hand wrote a message on the palace wall. And verse 5 says that the king was so frightened, the blood drained from his face and his knees knocked. It's in the Bible. No one could explain or interpret this message. And once again... Same old, same old. The king's wise men, counselors are called. They, they're baffled. The king gets more worried, more pale, and then the queen remembered. Oh, yeah. She says, oh, king, do not be upset. Your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, called upon a man named Daniel to interpret dreams and solve riddles. This Daniel still lives in the kingdom. Ask him what the handwriting means. And so Belshazzar calls Daniel. The prophet interprets the message. But it sure didn't calm the king because once again, Daniel, who's acting as the voice of God, has to prophesy judgment. And chapter 5 is almost like the, the flip side of, of last week's chapter 4. In chapter 4, Daniel uh, used King Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to affirm that the repentant will always reap the rewards of grace. You know, however nasty their past had been. In this chapter, Daniel uses Belshazzar's sacrilege to declare that the rebellious will reap consequences. No matter how secure or privileged or powerful their present is, two different kings demonstrate two different but equally important truths. God's complete pardon for the repentant and God's judgment of the proud and the rebellious and the unrepentant. Folks, this is not an easy message. I, I don't want to be given it, and you don't want to be hearing it. Who wants to hear about judgment or discipline? But if sin has no consequence, if evil has no check, if, if justice never comes, then what good is God and what is the benefit of grace? This psalm passage seems even more relevant, doesn't it? It's crazy. If grace is amazing, then it must rescue us from something. And that something is defined in this passage by the three words that are written on the wall, which Daniel is able to interpret. Mene, tekel, perez, or uh, parson, some interpretations. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign, king, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and uh, in the balances, and, and you haven't measured up. Perez, divided. 
your kingdom will be split and taken from you. You may feel secure in this world king, but the unrepentant before God will ultimately be identified, revealed, and judged. And Belshazzar was a powerful man. He had become the undisputed ruler of Babylon, the, the empire that had dominated the ancient world for for all these generations. But outside the walls of his capital at this very moment, there was a foreign army that was challenging the king's rule. He was unperturbed, though. Uh, uh, Belshazzar was just arrogantly secure. There were Persian invaders that had been kept outside for two and a half years. The walls of Babylon were, were as much as 350 feet high, 87 feet wide, absolutely impenetrable to any machine of war of that day. Um, the metropolis was fortified by these mammoth walls, and, and uh, it was so spacious that they, food could easily be cultivated within the walls. The river Euphrates even flowed through the city, supplied fresh water, source for livestock and crops. Babylon couldn't be starved into submission. Belshazzar was secure, and he was so confident that sort of as a slap in the face of his enemy, he throws a party, just a blatant way of thumbing his nose at the enemy, like saying, you don't worry us a bit. That's because weaklings don't worry us. So go ahead and have your little siege. We're going to throw a party. But his judgment would come that night. And let me just give you the spoiler alert. The Persians actually diverted the Euphrates River, funneled troops under the city's walls through the drained riverbed. The city was conquered. Belshazzar was killed. The party was over. And Daniel's words must have rang through the city. Mene, Tekel. Perez. It's a message that's actually repeated in the New Testament. God will not be mocked, Galatians says. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness, Romans says. And, and so God is saying to every person, beware, because there is no uh, human wall so high, no bank account so big, no activity so hidden that it cannot escape God's judgment. It's a lesson we keep relearning, even in 2023. Belshazzar was not the last to believe that his sin was protected by a wall of human achievement. You know, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein, Bernie Madoff, Ted Haggard, Bruxy Cavey, Harvey Weinstein, Lance Armstrong, Hockey Canada, the names change, the message doesn't. What is the writing on our wall, uh, on the Canadian church's wall, on, on NAC's wall, on our nation's wall? Power, prestige, position, approval, wealth, accomplishment, security, good works, it won't absolve us from an all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who brings every dark thing to light and judges sin. The names change, the situations vary, but the consequences do not. The judgment of God is sure. 
God's word still whispers, mene, tekel, perez. You know, the disadvantage, of course, of sort of taking our cues from celebrities, maybe even from Old Testament stories, is that it makes the story seem sort of far removed, uh, unreal in some ways, until we see the reality of God's judgment um, in lives close to home. Perhaps you know someone personally that you can't help but think there has been a disciplinary act of God in their lives. Perhaps that someone is you. Uh, one of our elders shared his personal story this summer of going through a season that he believes was a holy discipline. And it sounded hard. And yet I don't think he'd actually change a thing. I, I'm not sure he felt that way in the moment, but I know he sees, in retrospect, the loving kindness of God. But it was hard. But God will do what it takes to, to bring his children to humble repentance for our good and for his glory. God loves us too much to let us stray for too long. And if it means pruning, he'll prune. If it means using even enemies of the faith to teach us a lesson, he'll use enemies. If it, if it takes letting the bad guys win to bring us to our knees... He may even let the bad guys win. The writer of Hebrews says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so Daniel says to Belshazzar, through your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, you knew all about God's judgment and still you did not humble yourself. So it seems a simple knowledge of God doesn't insulate us from consequences of, of unrepentance. Knowing about God is so very different than knowing God, abiding with God. And scripture is clear. We are not abiding. We are not walking with the Lord in step with the Spirit if we persist in unrepentant actions and attitudes. There's no scripture that says... Uh, those in, in personal, unrelenting rebellion need not worry because they've, you know, prayed a prayer and been baptized. It's offensive to God to pretend that sin doesn't really matter to him. Now, notice at what moment during Belshazzar's feast that God showed up in judgment. God revealed his righteous anger at the moment when what was intended to be kept holy was, was used for sin. Christian, the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians that, that we are God's vessels. Uh, your life is meant to be holy, meant to exemplify God. If you are filling with sin, the vessel God has made sacred by the blood of his own son and using it for whole unholy purposes, how can we be exempt from judgment? Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is, yeah, required. Uh, Israel was given this promise of the covenant, 
But for her sins, she experienced this Babylonian captivity. Discipline begins at home. And Christian, I'm just asking you not to take the shed blood of Jesus and cheapen it by smearing it over our habitual, what? Greed, lust, anger, lies. Mene, tekel, perez. Belshazzar didn't even know the meaning of the words and his knees knocked at the very appearance of it. How much more should a, should a holy fear over sin seize us who, who know better? Folks, there's something else that ought to accompany this prophetic warning, I believe. Some of y'all, I think, might even have the prophetic gift of seeing where sin is crouching at the door. And, and perhaps you have even given uh, a warning of God's judgment. I think the warning, though, ought to produce weeping, a grief. I believe every time Daniel announced these proclamations, these interpretations of judgment, it was not said in glee, but a heaviness of heart, grief because of sin. Uh, For more than 40 years, Daniel cared for, prayed for, ultimately helped change the heart of Babylon's mightiest king. And less than a generation later, the impact of that amazing change was gone. The successor was as corrupt as the former guy. The change had changed back. I, I don't think anything has grieved my father more, who gave his life to pastoral ministry, than to leave a church in, in a relatively healthy, fruitful place, only to hear years later how it had drifted, become toxic, permissive of, of sin. That must be how Daniel's heart must have grieved. If you let, if you let it, sin has a way of reinfecting people, doesn't it? The history of Israel is the history of, of highs and lows being purified only to you know, turn their back on God not long after. Have we lost a bit of our capacity to truly grieve over sin, the sin of our nation, the sins of fellow Christians, our own sins? We're, we're good at the angry part, the righteous indignation. How about the grieving part? Uh, In my understanding of revivals throughout history, these moves of God that have been recorded, there all seems to be this common element to them. There are men, women, young people who get so fed up with their own sin, it literally brings them to their knees, face down on the ground. They can't repent soon enough. In my own life, I can remember a time as a, as a young adult just holding the edge of a pew. I could hardly wait until the end of the service, hoping that there would be what we, what we used to call an altar call, to get up and get right with God. And sure enough, there was an invitation. But you know what? I would have run to the front either way. Daniel's grief, which, which mirrors God's grief, was recorded in the hopes of turning God's people from sin. And Lord, may we never become so hardened, so cynical that we would lose our capacity 
to weep for those who have wandered away. The, the consequences of our inability to grieve over the effects of sin may, may be most evident in, in the church's handling of sexual abuse. Let, let me, let me um, take you back for a second. Yeah, back in the 80s, we had what was called the satanic panic where there was this avalanche of, of accusations of what was believed to be satanic ritualistic abuse. And when the dust settled, actually it turned out to be mostly made up, false memories, highly exaggerated. And a, a former FBI agent in a documentary I watched said that he spent a decade following up on mostly false accusations of of satanic ritualistic abuse. And, but then he was part of the investigations into the Catholic Church of secrets that got uncovered about systemic institutional abuse. And here's what the FBI agent kept hearing from people regarding this situation, presumably Christians. They'd say, well, you know what happened? Satanists have infiltrated the Catholic priesthood. No one, no one wants to reckon with their own tribe's sin, right? It's way easier to, to point the finger outside. And it's happening today in the Southern Baptist denomination. It's hit home in the Alliance denomination when, when we had credible testimony but still endorsed Ravi Zacharias. The, the fact that, that these are essentially my peers is even more devastating. And, and, and they are men like me. I'm shaken by their failures. I should be... Um, I think God, Ecclesiastes says, God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or bad. Mene, Tekel, Perez. You know, when Jesus looked over the people of Jerusalem, so immersed in sin, so hardened by his message that in a few days they would actually murder him. You know what he did? He wept. Yes, Jesus knew how to express righteous rage, but his first response to the devastation of sin was grief. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Grief for Sin is what drove Jesus to the cross where sin was overpowered. Among the saddest words, I think, in all scripture, and it's echoed three times in, in the first chapter of Romans, God gave them over to their sinful desires. Uh, the words remind us that sin is so awful that its worst punishment is that God may simply let people have their way and persist in sin. Where's the grace in all of this? Our, our, our warnings to fear and grieve, all Daniel has to offer in this chapter? No. The mercy of the previous chapters hasn't vanished. God's warnings are actually proof of God's love. If he did not care, he would not warn. And, and so God warned in the writing on the wall that we all live in a just universe where sin will be punished. And later, the message of the cross would complete that warning. The cross stands as both God's ultimate warning 
of the consequences of sin. And at the same time, it stands as the greatest expression of love for sinners. If God did not love, he would not graciously warn. The cross is the loudest cry of a savior to those he loves to turn from what will do them so much harm. Mene, Tekel, Perez. That's the handwriting against Belshazzar. And ultimately, it's, it's the handwriting from God to us. God only wants to turn uh, us from sin that will hurt us. He, he, he wants us to return to his loving arms that hold us. Just like a father lovingly reserves the sternest warnings for the, the greatest dangers of his child, our Heavenly Father sometimes dramatically warns us of, of danger to our soul. And the message of God's judgment isn't pleasant. I don't want to preach this, but I hope you'll listen because God is saying, your sin will find you out for I'm going to bring every deed into the light every hidden thing. Please, my child, turn from it. Come back. Come back to me. Zechariah says, return to me and I'll return to you. Folks, I, I've spoken as clearly as I know how uh, about the reality of judgment and the discipline of God. And there's a lot I don't understand. And, and, and why... Why, for instance, some seem to be disciplined while others are not. But I can say this. It's so much better to have an uncomfortable sermon or read a historic account in Daniel where God shows a warning and consequences in the hopes that we don't have to experience them. Judgment doesn't have to be our destiny. There's wisdom gained the hard way through experience. Uh, and then there's wisdom gained through the experience of others, including scripture. So whatever it is in your life, whatever sin you've allowed, there is a direction to run. Run to the Savior. And he will receive you and hold you and help you. He loves you enough to point to the consequences of sin and say, Mene, Tekel, Perez. And he does so to express with all the love in his heart to say, turn around, come to me. If I love you enough to warn you, then you know that I love you enough to receive you. Come to me. I'm not sure there's a better way to keep in step with God, to keep healthy accounts, than to keep short accounts, to have no offense or sin hanging over the relationship. The same principle applies to marriage or friendships or kids. Seek forgiveness quickly. It's a game changer to say, here's the thing I did wrong. I'm so sorry. I, I realize it hurts our relationship. I realize I hurt you personally. Would you please forgive me? And I will do my level best to not hurt you that same way again. The only difference is that God can't sin against us. He is, he is only good. He's only righteous and loving. But we often sin against him. I'm 
I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession in a few minutes. In the New Testament, confess simply means to agree or say the same thing. So, so when we say the same thing about the subject uh, that God talks about, including our behavior, our sin, our thoughts, that's confession. We're agreeing with God that it's wrong. Um, it's the acknowledgement of our sin and what God says about our sin. So a lack of confession, a lack of repentance can be such a hindrance to our relationship with God. I want you to be set free from the heaviness of that today. It's not because God is easily offended. It's because he is holy and perfect. So whatever invisible wall of separation is between you can be torn down today. Intimacy can be restored. So during this next song, you're welcome to stand, but you're welcome to sit and, and maybe reflect on what might be written on your wall. There are sins of commission, things that we have actively done, thoughts that we've had. There are sins of omission, things we should have done but neglected to do. And Jesus, I, I guess I'm asking you today that you would reveal to us our resentments, our ill feelings toward others that remain unaddressed, our, our unforgiveness, Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Just reflect on that, would you?